you have a Bible with you, please take it and turn to the Gospel of John chapter 11. The Gospel of John chapter 11. As we continue our study through this wonderful portion of God's Word, the Gospel of John. John chapter 11. If you'd like to follow along but you don't happen to have a Bible, there should be one uh, in the seat back in front of you or near you. Feel free to take that and find your way to the New Testament, to the fourth book of the New Testament, the Gospel of John chapter 11. I'm going to read for you this morning verses 28 through 37 of John chapter 11. And would you please stand, if you're able, as I read this portion of God's Word being reminded that because it is God's word, it comes to us with all of his authority, all of his truthfulness, and so it is without any error, and it is life-giving. And so let's give it our full attention. When she said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him, when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? This is God's word. Let's pray. Now, O Lord, we ask your help. We understand that it is your word that we are hearing and receiving. And so, Lord, would you conform our hearts to that of Christ? Would you make our priorities conform to your priorities? Would you cause us to, to know and believe what is true today? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have a seat. Well, we are, as you know, still in John chapter 11, and we're taking our time through John chapter 11, this portion where Jesus has gone to Bethany to the home of his very close friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And he went there because he had received word that Lazarus was very, very ill And in that moment when his disciples questioned him about that, Jesus intentionally explained that he was going to delay his travel back to Bethany, which was right near Jerusalem, and he was going to do that because this sickness that had overtaken Lazarus was going to ultimately be for the glory of God and that Jesus himself might be magnified. And so now there being in Bethany, he has already spoken with Martha, the older sister, and now he sends word that he wants to speak uh, to Mary, and he is surrounded by a cacophony of, of loud mourning and cries of grief. Well, the early church, and when I say the early church, I'm talking about the first two and three centuries of the church, uh, there were quite a few doctrinal, theological 
controversies as you might imagine. And in those first couple of hundred years of the church, the controversies that the church dealt with were primarily all around the questions of what is God really like and what precisely is the nature of Jesus Christ. And from the very beginning, Jesus' followers, like us, who were committed monotheists, they believed in one God. His first followers were Jewish converts, keep in mind. They were committed to the belief that there was only one God. Nevertheless, they recognized Jesus and they worshipped him as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They placed their faith in him. They confessed in that very first Christian confession of faith, quote, Jesus is Lord. They prayed to him. They preached about him and preached salvation in him alone. They sang songs to him and they wrote hymns to him. Now, if you are a first century Jewish person, you only do this for God. And yet this first generation of followers of Jesus... They knew firsthand that he was an embodied human being. They saw him. They touched him. They ate meals with him. They witnessed him hungry and harassed. They saw him crucified, of course, and die. And then they walked with him in the weeks following his resurrection. For the most part, the major theological controversies then in the first couple of hundred years to follow focused on how to reconcile those two realities. That there is one God, and that he is known in Jesus Christ, who is God and man, seemingly two irreconcilable realities. And so there was a lot of controversy swirling around what was clearly being revealed in Scripture and believed by the first generation of Christians. Now, if you know something about church history, you know that in those early centuries there arose a heretical and highly influential movement that came from a theologian from northern Africa named Arius. And Arius taught that Jesus, while admirable and praiseworthy in many ways, was not of the same essence as the Father, but was a different but similar but different essence. In fact, Jesus, no matter how close he was to God, nevertheless was a creation of God. And that heresy was known as Arianism, and it caught on like fire in the early church because it offered a way for people to understand finally a mystery that was hard to understand. The problem was is that it was false. It was a heresy, a damnable heresy that took the lordship right out of Jesus. And then on the other hand, there was another heresy at the same time that was gaining traction. And in a lot of ways, it was sort of the mirror opposite of Arianism. And it was called docetism. Now, while Arianism brought Jesus down out of his deity, docetism did the opposite. It denied the true humanity of Jesus. Uh, Docetism was a label of groups that had similar heresies of that, all which denied the full humanity of Jesus. The word docetism comes from the Greek word dokin, which means to be similar to or to appear. So this collection of heresies denied that Jesus was actually human. He only appeared to be a man. And the reason why is because they were sort of Gnostic 
they saw physical reality either as an illusion or as an altogether bad thing. And God would never take on human flesh. And they thought they were honoring Jesus by this. They thought that they were protecting his deity by denying his humanity. When in reality, they were taking away Christian hope. You know, God's word anticipates all of those errors. In the Old Testament prophecies, we are helped to anticipate a divine human Messiah. If you look at and understand the biblical prophecies regarding the Messiah, it is clear that he was intended and anticipated as to be one who would be God in the flesh. Here in John 11... As Jesus approaches the death of his friend Lazarus, he has just pronounced that he is the I Am with all authority over life and death. But the Jesus who reveals himself at the tomb of Lazarus as the resurrection and the life is also the human Christ who wept and experienced great anger over sin and death. So once again, as we've seen so often, we see Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, voluntarily entering the sad plight of his people. This is the doctrine of the incarnation. The Gospels consistently portray Jesus as a real human being, liable to weakness, limitations, emotions, and pain, and all without but nevertheless genuinely human. We have to remember that while in the person of Jesus, God takes on a real human nature, there is no mixture of his human and divine natures. In other words, Jesus wasn't 50% God and 50% man. He wasn't some sort of an amalgamation of a human and divine nature, but the scripture helps us to understand that Jesus held these two natures in perfect union. He was Man and he was God. Now, if you're having a hard time wrapping your mind around that, remember, the doctrine of the incarnation is the chief mystery in all of the universe. There is nothing deeper than the incarnation of God taking on flesh. The doctrine of the incarnation reveals the merciful condescension of the Son of God to take upon himself a humble human nature so radically unlike his divine nature. So let's try to get our minds around this by considering the distance that exists between humanity and humanity's creator. Think of a potter and a clay, an illustration that's given to us in Scripture in various times. Think about it as we consider the distance between what God is like and what we are like, while the potter makes from the clay whatever he likes, and while that clay will eventually bear the creativity and the expertise and the stamp of authenticity of the potter, in the end, the potter is nothing like clay. There's no way that we can say, the potter is just like clay in such and such. And the same way is true with God. While we bear the image of God and the mark of authenticity of being created by God, God is not like us. God is perfect in every way. He does not feel pain, nor is he subject to change. He never adjusts or pivots 
to suit contingencies happening around him, like we do at every moment. God is eternal, so he is not within time, but is outside and over time, not subject to the passage of moments like finite creatures are. The Westminster Confession of Faith, which is our confession of faith, summarizes well the biblical witness to the nature of God. And in chapter 2, paragraph 1 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, we read this wonderful summary of what the Bible teaches us about God. Listen to this. There is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. That's what God is like. And it is nearly impossible for human language to properly express the holy other nature of God, the sheer magnitude of the distance between what he is and what we are. And this is why we call the incarnation the chief miracle and mystery of the cosmos, because in the person of Jesus, God took upon himself a human nature becoming like us in every way except for sin. In the Gospel accounts, we see that Jesus grew and matured from a child into manhood. He hungered, he rested from labor, he longed with compassion for the people of Jerusalem, he experienced excruciating sorrow, he displayed righteous anger. Jesus felt what we feel. In all these human experiences, Jesus assumed upon himself Through it all, he became the saving mediator between sinners and God. We needed God to become like us if we were to be saved by his grace. This is good news, the incarnation. We have a God who, for us and our salvation, became like us, taking upon himself the very nature of a servant. And here we see Jesus wept. He cried at the tomb of a friend out of grief. For all that death had vandalized in God's good creation. The writer of Hebrews writes this in chapter 4, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. Now in our time remaining, we're going to consider the good news of the nearness and the love and the indignation of the Son of God. First of all, the nearness of the Son of God. After his discussion with Martha, Jesus now turns his attention to her sister Mary. I want to speak to Mary now. And notice how Martha 
goes to Mary and she refers to Jesus as the teacher. The teacher wants to speak to you. Now the reason why that is worth noting is that in that time, rabbis did not teach women. Uh, It would have been considered beneath them to teach women. Women did not need to learn the Torah the way men needed to learn the Torah and so forth and so on. But here, women close to Jesus know him as the one who taught them. Jesus is already establishing the full dignity of the women who bear his image, the full equal dignity as God's created image bearers. Now Jesus refers to the Jews here, or that is John refers to the Jews who gathered at Mary and Martha's home. Now everyone in this passage is Jewish, but John uses that term to describe those who'd come from Jerusalem to mourn with them. At that time, mourning over death had an important social and even ceremonial function. And so people would come together with loud cries, and it would be designated over a period of days. And these people would come, and they would lift up loud cries on on behalf of those who were mourning. It was a means to validate the reality of the loss that had happened and to not allow anyone to grieve alone. Jesus means to talk to Mary now away from those distractions of the gathered mourners, but they see Mary get up, and what do they do? They follow her. They think she's going to the tomb, and so they continue to go. And so imagine the scene as Mary is walking just outside the village to meet with Jesus, and she's surrounded by these these mourners still audibly, loudly wailing with their grief. And that is the scene as she approaches Jesus with this crowd of mourners. And what are they mourning? They're mourning over all that has been lost. And while they know it is a problem, while they know it is a loss, they don't have a clue as to how deep and great and profound a loss it is. The very reality of of death is the vandalizing of what God had made. It was not what was intended. Now you see there in verse 32... She reaches, Mary, she, she reaches Jesus, and what does she do? She does something very similar to what her sister Martha had done. She falls at her feet, and she said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. She believes that Jesus can heal the sick, because if he'd been there, he certainly would have healed her brother. So she believes, she knows he can heal, she's seen him heal, but she in no way believes that he has the sort of power that would grant him supremacy over life and death, which again reveals that there's a measure of faith that she has in Jesus, but she does not yet have the full picture. Now zoom back for a minute, because I don't want us to miss the significance of the obvious. That in the person of Jesus Christ, God is present with his people. He's present with his people in their joy, and he's present with his people in their grief. What are we witnessing here? But God in the flesh, engaged fully in the nature of a man with his people. What does John write in his prologue? And the word became flesh and did what? And dwelt among us. And that's exactly what he's doing here. I love what the Scottish... Presbyterian theologian Donald MacLeod writes about the Incarnation. Listen to this. Jesus was keyed into the life stream of the human race and to the whole created order. 
in the incarnation of God the Son, the redemptive process had entered not merely the world of the Spirit, but the world of matter. That link has never been and never will be severed. We stress then, unreservedly, that the Lord took a human body, and with that, that the gospel is not interested only in ideas. It is concerned with facts, and it is concerned with matter. It exists in the world of physics and biology. Jesus lived where he could be seen. Jesus lived where he could see human sin, hear human swearing and blasphemy, see human diseases, and observe human mortality, poverty, and squalor. His mission was fully incarnational because he taught us by coming alongside us, becoming one of us, and sharing our environment and our problems. What a blessed thing it is that God would take on a human nature. So here, Jesus is with, fully with, the sisters of Lazarus and all of those who are there to mourn. He's in the middle of their loud grief. He's with them in their dismay. He's with them in their incomplete faith. The incarnation, then, is not just a mystery to be debated. It is a doctrine which serves as a source of enormous comfort to us. A doctrine that is fully anticipated throughout the Old Testament. Listen to these words about God in the Psalms. Psalm 6, verse 8. The Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. Psalm 9, 12. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Jesus needs no prompting from the saints or from his mother Mary to take action and to care for us. That's why we do not pray to Mary and the saints. It's because the Son of God is near us and with us. What a terrible insult it would be to our mediator who shed his blood and died on a cross to be our mediator if we would seek out other mediators, if we would seek out other objects of our prayer, or to believe that somehow he is too busy or inadequate to hear and respond to our prayers, and so we need to engage and pray to the saints. No, no, no. Jesus doesn't need the help of anyone else to be near us or to hear us or to help us. There's a great scene in Les Miserables where Jean Valjean lies dying in his deathbed. And he's asked if he wants a priest. And he points heavenward and he says, I already have one. That's the nearness of the Son of God. Secondly, let's consider the love of the Son of God. You see verse 36? Those that had come from Jerusalem, they see Jesus weep. They see him cry there, verse 35. And in seeing this, John writes, So the Jews said, See how he loved him. And certainly that was true. But they had no idea just how far and wide and high and deep is the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. 
Remember that this event takes place within the very grasp of those who are planning to and will ultimately put him to death. Chapter 11 initiates the second half of John's Gospel, oftentimes referred to as the Book of Glory, where the fullness of the glory of Jesus will be revealed in his death and resurrection. And everything that happens from chapter 11 on is stamped with the cross. And at the heart of the cross lie the words of Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. The doctrine of the Incarnation has the aroma of love all about it. God's movement towards us in the person of the Lord Jesus has the pulsing heart of love at its very core. And here's another point that those gathered in Bethany could not fathom, that the love of Jesus extended well beyond his friends to his enemies. It reached beyond those who showed him great kindness to those who would drive spikes through his flesh. Romans 5.8, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And just like Jesus' nearness is not simply an abstract idea to ponder, the love of Jesus is something to experience, to live our lives out of. In Greek mythology, you had these uh, really frightening beings, the sirens, they were called. Now, not to... okay. This is a long time ago, so I'm not picking on women here. Uh, The sirens were these wicked feminine entities. And by pointing that out, I'm not saying that women are wicked, right? Okay. You know the Greeks. Um, So the sirens, they were these evil female entities, and they would sing. You've heard that phrase, siren song. They would sing this alluring, probably lurid song to sailors from the rocky coast. They'd sing to these ships as they'd go by. The sailors, so entranced and captivated by the lurid promises of those songs, would go towards the sirens as they sang, and they would crash their ships upon the rocky shore, and there they would drown. But there were two sailors who took their ships safely through the songs of the sirens. One was Odysseus, And here's how Odysseus fixed the problem. Odysseus took wax and he stopped up the ears of all of the men on his ship. And just to be safer, he then tied them all to the masts of the ship. And they made it safely through. The sirens were singing, but they couldn't hear it. They had wax in their ears. And just in case, they were tied to the masts anyway. That's one way to deal with it. But the better, more admirable way was that of Orpheus. Orpheus was sailing with Jason and his Argonauts. And as they approached the shore where the sirens began belting out their enticing song, this is what Orpheus did. Orpheus was a skilled musician and poet. And Orpheus then took his lyre and began to play it and began to sing a song that was more beautiful than the song of the sirens. And the Argonauts that day on the ship listened to the better more beautiful song of Orpheus and the 
the siren song faded into obscurity because of that. And so that enticing song, the sinful song of the sirens, just lost its ability to charm them because they heard the better, more beautiful song. And that's what we want. That's what we want when we consider the love of Jesus versus the enticements of the world, to know that the love of Jesus is a far sweeter song than the world sings. The love of Jesus is not just a sentimental feeling of warmth. It is the launching pad of our life. It is what is to guard us from temptation, not just simply by stuffing wax in our ears, but by singing the better song. That's why we sing hymns like this. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Spread his praise from shore to shore. How he loveth, ever loveth, changeth never, never more. How he watcheth o'er his loved ones, died to call them all his own. How for them he intercedeth, watcheth o'er them from the throne. Well, finally, consider the indignation of the Son of God. The indignation of the Son of God. Look there again at verse 33. Remember the scene? Mary has come to Jesus. He had wanted to speak to her alone, but but she's surrounded by the loud wailings of the mourners who'd come from Jerusalem. Now there's some debate here as to exactly what's being gotten at. Do you see verse 33? When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now here's the debate over this, and it's really interesting. It's over the word that is translated in most English translations as deeply moved in his spirit. And the reason why it's controversial is that the vast majority of scholarships conclu- scholars conclude that that word means anger or displeasure, not, quote, deeply moved. And what you'll see is a departure in translation philosophy where the English translations took that word and instead of anger or indignation, they translated it deeply moved. Now, can those things be Similar, yes, but if someone is red-faced and the veins are bulging out of their neck, you say, look, he's deeply moved. Doesn't quite fit, does it? There is a difference. Now, if you look at the European continental translations, beginning, first of all, with the German translations from way back when, they will translate that word anger. He was angry or he was indignant. In fact, in your Bibles, you may find a little footnote if you have a study Bible or a reference Bible, which will point you down and show that oftentimes that word is translated indignant or angry. And you might have a translation that even includes that in the main text. It's interesting because that same word was used in Greek culture to describe a loud noise that was made by a person. The disgust, the anger is so real, they just, boom! Have you ever been that angry? And you want to make sure that the people around you know that you're angry. So you accompany it with a soundtrack, right? 
And that word in Greek culture at the time was oftentimes used to describe the snorting of a horse that was ready for war. So that word is applied to horses in ancient Greek that are ready to to run a race and are snorting against the competition or are dressed for battle and are ready to square off against the enemy. There's a snorting that goes on. When it's applied to people, that word describes a similar sort of indignation, anger. Jesus was not sitting back and stoically considering the situation around him. He wasn't sitting there going, and you know, you know, this is a this is kind of a moving experience I'm having right now. That's not what was happening. He was angry. He was indignant. One New Testament scholar goes so far as to say that this word, quote, indicates an outburst of anger. And any attempt to interpret it in terms of an internal emotional upset caused by grief is illegitimate. It's rather definitive, isn't it? So the question is to what or to whom was Jesus' outrage, his indignation, his anger directed? Was it the lack of faith that still dogged his closest followers? Maybe. Was it all of the hopelessness reflected in the loud mourning? Maybe. Was it the fact that one of his closest friends has died and now he has to go confront that reality? Well, actually, I don't think we are necessarily meant to choose one of the above. In fact, one commentator says that this passage suggests a more complex impression that it's not an either-or choice. It's the entire scene in Bethany that was a display of human tragedy. Jesus raged against the confusion, the mourning, the lack of faith. But ultimately, he raged against the tomb, I'm convinced. Against death itself as that sad, lasting, tragic, vandalizing consequence of man's rebellion against God. So as Jesus approaches the tomb of his friend, he does so not as one who is just simply moved, but he does so as a warrior dressed for battle. As one commentator observes, no warrior ever waded into the enemy's ranks with greater ferocity than Jesus did in waiting for death. The great 19th century Reformed scholar B.B. Warfield wrote this, quote, Jesus approached the grave of Lazarus in a state not of uncontrollable grief, but of inexpressible anger. The emotion which tore his breast and clamored for utterance was just rage. It is death that is the object of his wrath, and behind death, him who has the power of death, and whom he has come into this world to destroy. Tears of sympathy may fill his eyes, but his soul is held by rage, and he advances to the tomb, in Calvin's words, as a champion who prepares for conflict. That's good, isn't it? That'll preach... I want you to think about this. What would it mean to us, what would it mean for us, 
and really for the entire universe, if God did not possess righteous anger against all that is wrong. If God were not indignant over all that is wrong in this world, over all that vandalizes his good creation, if God were not angry about that, what would that mean for us? Because what is God's anger except the response of his perfect, pure, holy justice? You see, we need a God. And we have a God who is angry over all that is wrong. A God who is indignant over evil, wickedness, and injustice. A God who hates the gas chambers of Auschwitz and the killing fields of Cambodia. We need a God, and we have a God who is angry over the violence in our streets and the violence against the unborn. We need a God, and we have a God who is angry over those who have made billions of dollars off of the addictions of the weak. We need a God, and we have a God who is angry about those who lie to our children, who lie to those who are vulnerable about who they are and what they are, who confuse them and lie to them about what it means, even at the most basic level, to be male and female in the image of God. Those who tell our children that they can throw off the reality and all that is good for their bodies and become their own gods, their own makers. If you don't think God is angry over that, then you don't know much about who he is. We have a God who is indignant about all that is unjust and immoral against all that his human creatures debase themselves with, against all the ways that we use and discard others. What would it say about God? if he were not angry about those things? What would it say about the chances of final, perfect justice being done if God were not angry about those things? So if the fact that Jesus is angry to the point of disgust and indignation at this point, if that ruins your picture of Jesus, then good, you had the wrong Jesus. See verse 34? Jesus takes action. Take me to where he is. He's ready to act on that righteous anger by raising Lazarus as a sign that he is there to defeat death and the grave. And then we read that tiny little verse, verse 35, the verse that all of us who were raised in church and went to RAs when we were kids, if you're a Southern Baptist, you know what RAs were, are. And, and you had to memorize a verse, and you thought it was the funniest thing to memorize John 11.35. Here it is. Jesus wept. It's well known as the shortest verse in the Bible. This simple statement reminds us of the truly human nature that the Son of God took upon himself. And we don't want to separate verse 33, Jesus' indignation, From verse 35, Jesus' tears. In other words, don't separate Jesus' righteous anger from his righteous grief, his sympathizing grief. Righteous anger is typically accompanied by grief, by an identification with those who have been harmed. Did Jesus cry because... 
His close friend died. I assume that's part of it. But again, in mere moments, he's going to welcome Lazarus back to life. Were Jesus' tears the result of his sympathy for Mary and Martha? I think we can safely assume that was at least a contributing factor. And I love what J.C. Ryle writes. He writes, quote, There is nothing unworthy of a child of God in tears. Even the Son of God could weep. It shows us above all that the Savior in whom we believe is a most tender and feeling Savior. He knows what we go through, and he pities us. But again, it's the entire scene. The loss, yes. The sorrow of his friends, yes. But I think most of all, it is death that calls forth such strong reaction, such anger and sympathy from Jesus. I love the observation of D.A. Carson that Jesus possessed an anger that kept his grief from being merely sentimental and a grief that kept his anger from being hard and callous. Jesus' anger over death, his utter revulsion at the grave, is a grief and an anger that is meant to comfort us. Jesus does not tolerate death. He does not quietly and passively accept its presence. Jesus never once made a non-aggression pact with the grave. Jesus is not engineering a two-state solution between life and death. He's not making a way for them to peacefully coexist. The Son of God's posture towards death is filled with such disgust that His response to it is described in a way that calls to mind the snorting of a war horse ready for battle. And that battle was fought ultimately on the cross. And it was finished and won when Jesus strode out of the grave. On the cross, we're going to see Jesus, as it were, kick up the dust as he makes his charge. And in his rising, we will see the coup de grace as Jesus finishes off the grave once and for all. Jesus' love and compassion for his people is to such a high degree that the fires of his wrath are kindled white hot against all that has defaced and ruined us. And so do not despair, Christian. Do not live in fear of death. Hate it, yes, but do not live in fear of it, because however big and ugly it may look to us, Jesus has taken away its power, he has silenced its threats, and he has brought about its destruction. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Now, our Father and our God, we ask that you would drive this truth home in our hearts. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you sympathize with us in every way and that you hate what harms us. God, thank you for this love of yours that is so deep and high and wide. Thank you for your nearness that comforts us in our sorrow. Thank you 
for all that you are and all that you became, that you might save us. Father, now we ask that you would grant faith to the skeptic or the unbeliever, that you would comfort the sorrower, the sorrowing that are here, and that you would build up the faith of all of us who look to you in hope. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.